lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. This is it. The very last show of the year for the Steve Dace Show. Uh, greetings. Welcome to Blaze Media. Happy Friday to all of you. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well after this We will be signing off for the annual Christmas vacay back again on January the 2nd. That is if they haven't changed the locks in between those two dates. We love to know what you think about what we think. 888-900-3393 is the number. 888-900-3393. This show, in fact, is dedicated to what you think about what we think. It is a full two hours of Feedback Friday because I have months of backlogged emails that we just haven't had a chance to get to because whenever we do feedback Friday, you guys just go on and on and on. I know. And I'm trying to move the conversation along and get to as many of the listeners and viewers' thoughts as I can, but you guys just won't stop talking. Yeah, you've always been a pushover like that, Dason. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. So today is the day we're going to clear as many of these emails out from the inbox as we can, which you can access by emailing the program. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. For those of you that are watching or listening later, I should say, on the podcast, last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. So for the next two hours, sit back. We're going to basically do some Q&A. Take as many of these from the audience as we can. Get through as many as we can. And then after that, man, I'm emptying the inbox. And we start anew with 2019. What's the over-under? In fact, I'm going to do that. That's my job, isn't it? I'm putting the over-under at emails that get answered the next two hours, which when you look at commercial breaks, roughly 30, uh, roughly 100, an hour and a half. Yeah. Okay. So in the next 90 minutes of airtime, I'm going to put the over-under on emails that we get to on this list that's about six pages long at seven. Under. <laughs> what number would I have given you would not have said under, smart Alex? So, uh, uh, one. <laughs> Always take the under. You're gaming the system a little bit there. You set that number pretty unnaturally low just to make sure you could exceed it. So I, I'm going over. You're seven. going over? You think the, the house cooked the books, do you? I think you did. Okay. Let's get to it. Let's start with Ben, or I'm sorry, Bert Madwood. Bert Madwood says, you guys have postulated. I like the use of that word, by the way. You guys have postulated that we live into Americas. Our country is populated by people with irreconcilable differences who are effectively in a civil war. I believe one side wants liberty and a constitutional republic, while the other wants conformity and a socialist state. Rather than continue down this path to a possible bloody civil war, do you think it's time to just divide the nation now and go our separate ways before it's too late? Here's the problem we have with even considering your um, postulation to our postulating. All right, here's the here's the problem with that, Bert. Is I don't think it's as cut and dried and simple uh, about what the two sides want. Yeah. As you've laid out. Who are the we's? Who are the two sides? Where do they live, man? I think there is a group of sectarian elites who are predominantly conglomerated and coagulated and concentrated in uh, major urban areas or, you know, towns of major academic uh, communities who do want the, the, really what we're talking about is openly about paganism. That's, that's what they want. They want paganism. We can, we can call it 
you know, conformity, statism, socialism, and it's all those things. But really, if we're going to make it as simple as we possibly can, and we're getting a head start on next year's theme of no BS, what they really want is a pagan society. That's what they want. Okay. Now, I, I, I do think one side of this divide wants a pagan society. The, 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 the problem with this formula is the other side has vast disagreement on what it wants instead. That's why we kind of break it down into the left, and then there's the not left. There's a lot of not left. People that are just fine with nanny state government, provided it doesn't tell them not to bake the cake bigot, or doesn't make them bake the cake bigot, for example. People that think that um, Christians are bigots uh, if they don't bake the cake, but that they just don't want a regulatory state imposing uh, on their conscience. People who don't even think you have a right to conscience, but don't want to be told that they have to turn in their guns. I mean, there's a there's a lot of variation in the other side. You know, when you have a civil war like what we had in, in the 19th century, it's a pretty clear question. Does the autonomy of the individual states allow them to practice open tyranny, like slavery. That was the question. And I know you're going to send me, like, no, it, 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 yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not saying it wasn't the only, I'm not saying it was the only issue, but it was the primary driving force. Does the autonomy of the, of the individual states in our form of government permit states to practice open tyranny? That really was the question in, in the form of, in this case, in the form of slavery. We don't even necessarily agree in the not left on what is or what is a tyranny. I mean, there's all kinds of people in the not left that are just fine with Planned Parenthood slaughtering babies and don't want to have to, you know, do anything legislatively to shut it down. They might, they, they would probably agree with us that they shouldn't have to pay for it if you don't want to, shouldn't be funded by the government, but they don't have a moral objection to that. So I'm not trying to avoid your question because as a Christian, I believe in just war theory. And so I, I believe short of self-defense, whatever could be done to avoid violence should be pursued. With your own self-defense obviously being the the line that cannot pass. Agreed. All right. But we're not to a cogent conflict. Because even if you even if you if, if even if you got rid of the sectarian leftists who are controlling all of our major institutions, this would just devolve into five or six other arguments. That's why I call this the balkanization of America. You're watching, Todd, several different countries and multiple different cultures are attempting to live, and not in a in a melting pot way. I mean, whole cloth differences in what style and, and way of life we wish to carry out are trying to live under the same flag within the same borders. It's hard. I, listen, I'm all for uh, encouraging uh, voting with our feet. I mean, really getting behind something you believe in, putting action to it. But, but where where does this going to happen? Whether within these borders or elsewhere within the world? I mean, I, I you need to practically think about that. There, there's. It, the closest answer in the relatively recent past would be that everybody moved to Texas. You know, Steve, you talk all the time about them, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, en masse, um, th- there's no new world out there anymore. W- really, where collectively would we go, even if we can be something resembling a collective that Steve says we don't have, and rightly so. I, um, 
we're not even close to being able to conceive uh, in mass of what you're talking about. I mean, look at our own state. Let, let's say you allowed Cal, Cal exit. You, you let California go. Well, we're, we're sitting in our state court right now in Iowa determining whether the Iowa Constitution permits you the right to murder your child. And it clearly doesn't. But one side of the argument says that it does because they just want it to say that. This isn't happening at Berkeley. This isn't happening in San Francisco. This isn't happening at Nancy Pelosi's campaign offices. We're having this debate, guys, in Iowa. Beto O'Rourke is a Texan. Yes. Yeah. So I I don't think, I I think we're past, or maybe not past, we're not to the argument being it's really about two cut and dried ways of life. We have a lot of Americans that want to live differently than even the stuff that we're advocating on this show most of the time, affirmatively, but probably side with us in opposition to the compulsory, coercive nature of American mm-hmm. uh, cultural Marxism. Get rid of them, though. Like you've mentioned Dave Rubin in the past. Mm-hmm. Get rid of American cultural Marxists. Do you think Dave Rubin wants to live the same way you do? No, I'm certain he doesn't. Uh, right but now, you guys respects. are right. Yeah, right now, you guys are simpaticos, right? Because you have a common obstacle. Remove that obstacle. How many more similarities are there? You would have one in that you both agree that government's position is not to coercively force your will on the other, right? You would agree on that. Yeah. But short of that, there wouldn't be much agreement other beyond that, probably, right? And you and I talk off air and laugh about it a little bit all the time, but let's just flat out say, let's say um, we get past that. How, what's the current state of Christendom that if we start putting some of these things aside, are, are Catholics and Protestants just going to fill the void by turning on each other once again? I mean, there's nothing yeah. new under the sun. We are just unstable in all of our ways, and we prefer that level of ready, fire, aim over most other things, especially the pursuit of the truth. Yeah, there's two facets to this conversation, um, and and America, I mean, its founding was kind of like a cat— I, Western civilization, or the best parts of it, is, have kind of been like uh, a, a game of cat and mouse, where you keep moving to new areas of the planet that haven't been, you know, overrun by paganism or tyr- tyranny uh, or what have you yet. And you can set up shop there, and America is the greatest example of that, um, to where you can escape from the inevitability of the human condition, at least for a little while, in the grand scheme of things. We're at a place now, though, uh, geographically, there's no, obviously no place to do that, except for Mars, and we've talked about that before in jest. Um, so we're at a place now where the cat has us cornered. Um, progressivism has to be defeated. That's one facet of that. A good theology doesn't just replace a bad one by default, though. And I think that's what we're talking about here in this context, in this discussion. There has to be a returning to some form of commonality um, at large amongst the different factions. Because you're absolutely right. In the not left, there are all of these different factions that only have one thing in common. That is, we are not Marxists. So what happens once we defeat Marxism, if we do at all? Well, then we have all of these <laughs> disparate factions that have nothing in common right. again. <laughs> and that's, we just keep ch- chasing our tails mm-hmm. around and around again. Um, and uh, that's why I say you have to return to something. And, you know, if you want to just take away, well, you can't really divorce. That's where we have to have revival 
We have to return to the notion of who we are, what we are, created in God's image uh, with certain inalienable rights, and that is what we have to return to. But that we, can, we are only going to be able, capable of returning to that form of Americanism when we first have revival, which is why we talk about that all the time. So to answer the question in my own way, um, just splitting the country doesn't really do, or splitting uh, just doesn't really you solve do the problem. Splitting. You just do another splitting mm-hmm. um, and times infinity because that's who we are short of short of a redeeming uh, figure in our lives, if not just a figure, but really knowing our Savior. That's who we are. Our base nature is what we are witnessing on a day-to-day basis in Western civilization in America specifically. I, I think the reason we're struggling with acknowledging this is because we are living in a country... Let me take a step back. The dynamic we, the three of us, just said here and laid out for you in the audience has been largely what has existed throughout humankind since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. This is, you mentioned, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not new. God's own people could not live together. They split into two kingdoms. And what was one of the primary driving forces? How to worship God. We want to worship him here where we live rather than go to where you guys are at, which gives the power perceived human power to you. We want to go to, we don't want to go to Jerusalem. We want to worship him here. The, uh, the, the schism that led to the formation of what became known as the Greek Orthodox church was largely this sort of territorialism. When is Christmas and who elects the popes and the bishops? When's Christmas and Easter, I should say, and who elects, why? Who determines what are the two most sacred days of the church calendar, and then who determines who's in charge of the church? That's the argument. That's really the argument. So this is not new. The, it, it's new to us. And this is why we as Americans are uniquely struggling with this, because we live in a country founded by people who were fully aware of this truth of history and tried to create a society that would insulate a civilization from this notion of human nature. Like pilgrims who were escaping the state telling them, essentially, bake the cake, bigot, in their way in the, 15, in the 17th century, getting on a rickety boat and coming here and landing at Plymouth Rock. This is a culture created and founded by people that were essentially dissidents in many cases, that were fleeing the forced coercion, the forced compromise of their conscience from the state that now is the daily debate we have in our country. It's just new to us. This has not been new throughout the history of what Todd described as Christendom, or has it been new really throughout the history of all of human, na- human nature? George W. Bush was wrong. It is not in the, in the natural human will for us to want to be free. What is natural is for us to want to be free to dominate our fellow man. That is what is natural. He, that's the progressive utopian view, but it's not history. That's why history is so bloody. I want my way. I want my team to be ahead. I want my side to be in charge. 
And so you live in a country founded by people who were largely escaping this dynamic that had already riddled and, and ruined Western civilization. And so they came here to essentially try to revive it, revitalize it, getting back to basics. And even in those cases, hey, Catholics can't run for office in this state. Jews can't run for office in these states. If you don't belong to the Congregationalist Church, you can't hold legislative office in Connecticut. If you're not Episcopalian, you can't, you're a second-class citizen in Virginia. Even in the midst of founding, some of these, Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal and then went home to slaves. Even amidst this acknowledgement of history and an attempt to create a culture, that would recognize this reality and do its best to insulate the people from themselves. We couldn't escape ourselves. We can't escape. And the best, therefore, we can do this side of heaven is create a system of government that gives us the freedom and liberty to correct our own errors or correct and right the wrongs of previous generations. And that's what our founders gave us. That's what's going away now. We don't have that anymore. That's gone. And we don't have the will to follow through on it, even if it remained. See, the reason, can I tell you a dirty little secret? Man, we're only at the first email. We're getting seven. I don't care if we're here all night. I'm going to make my point, all right? Um, <laughs> the reason that we are losing to sectarian Marxists and elites is because the balkanization in this culture already occurred. They could not have done this in 1954. They couldn't have done it in 1942. They couldn't have done it in 1885. They couldn't have done it in 1901. They, it, it, what you're watching happen can only happen now. And the reason it's happening now is because we have permitted it to happen because we have balkanized, which set the stage for something else to take its place. We've already lost that way. The best, the best deconstruction of transgenderism I saw this year on Twitter did not come from a Christian apologist or evangelist. It came from an openly gay man named Chad Felix Green. That's an example of what I'm talking about. The, the split has already happened. And nature abhors a vacuum. And so since we have splintered, Something must arise to take its place. And in this country, what you're watching arise to take its place is cultural Marxism driven by a group of sectarian elites. That's what's happening. Let's go next to Michael. This may sound crazy. I like when you guys lead with that. <laughs> this may sound crazy, but with the Mexican drug cartels getting rich by flooding our country with drugs and trafficking humans across the border, why don't we just take over Mexico? What is being done is a threat to our national security, so we have every right to. We send millions to Mexico. This money doesn't end up helping the citizens. The actions the Mexican government continues to allow are destabilizing our nation. Of course, we could still spend, we would still spend money, but we'd also get additional tax revenue. Right now, we are better off. Right now, we are better off cutting off all foreign aid because we need it to spend on the illegal immigrants we allowed in and the healthcare cost, costs caused by the opioid and heroin heroin epidemics. We have many companies in Mexico, many Americans own property in Mexico, and it has many resources that can greatly benefit the United States. 
Could you imagine what our American farmers could do with that good farmland? Yes, our military would have to go in and eradicate the drug cartels, but oh well, something has to be done and they could do it. Plus, it would be easier to build a wall at the southern border of Mexico. Which government do you think the people of Mexico would prefer to have govern them? Us or the one they have? The left couldn't say we are only going to war for oil this time. We either defend ourselves against our foreign enemies or we need to rise up against our domestic ones. That's from Michael. How would you reject his suggestion? I I wouldn't reject it. I would say bravo uh, as a think piece. You 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 understand uh, the value of uh, rhetoric and creative thinking because what you're actually uh, proposing is absurd for multiple reasons, but it still makes more sense in many ways than, than what, what we're, we're doing, doing now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing. I mean, I would say if I wanted to reject this, um, I would say, well, the real way that you, if, if this is all being done, his premise is because the cartels are making so much money uh, and they're dangerous, killing people. Well, somebody's going somebody's gonna to die. Um, if you want to sink the cartels a different way, you just make all drugs legal here in the United States, tax the heck out of them. And um, under the count, I mean, same thing with uh, legalized sports betting. I mean, bookies, bookies aren't going to be happy. Uh, the mob ain't going to be happy if it's still around and they still keep bookies. Uh, the same, same thing would happen here. Uh, the, the problem is, though, um, of course, all of the addicts, what do you do with them? What are the policies there? But, yeah, what we're doing now for the, the war on drugs is akin to what we've been doing in Afghanistan as well. It's just an endless war with no clear goal in sight, uh, no clear... Uh, I, there is a goal, but there's no idea of what victory looks like mm -hmm. at this point. And so you're just spinning your wheels, spending millions and probably billions of dollars. Yeah, you you catch El Chapo. There's 10 more El Chapos. I mean, the cartels, so long as we don't have border security, great border security... The cartels are like Hydra. You cut off one head and immediately nine more appear. Um, but that's still, his idea is still, again, as Todd said, it's more rational than what we're doing right now. What's What we're doing right now is basically, um, you know, throwing a baseball or a tennis ball up against the wall and hoping at some point, uh, the you know, the tennis ball is just going to break through that brick wall. No, it's never going to happen. What we're doing right now is we're sending them a lot of good paying jobs. Yeah. Uh, letting them import to us a lot of low skilled, uh, lower paid workers that drive down our wages, uh, as well as who and, and who are earnest people, as well as criminals, thieves, drugs, drug, drug, drug addicts and rapists, like Trump said. That's true, too. Um, we're getting the worst of every potential deal right now. That's why I asked you guys to to tell me why how you would argue against Michael's assertion, because it's absurd as a standalone proposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But by comparison to the dynamic as it currently stands, it's a huge dramatic upgrade for the for the for the for the populations in both countries compared to the arrangement that we have right now. I don't know how you could debate against that. Yeah. There's not, not exactly as fine a line as we would think between the absurd and the in insane, because this is miles away from insane. Mm -hmm. and it's still absurd. 
You know, I, years ago when, when I was first getting into uh, news talk radio, and this is when it became a rock became a quagmire. And I kept getting challenged for my audience. What would you do differently? What would you do differently? So one day I came on the air and I laid out, if I were commander in chief, here's what I would do. And, and by the way, I don't think it's my job. Like if, if you're, if, if you went to the ER because you're having a chest grabber and you know, um, the cardiovascular surgeon comes in and you perish on his operating table. Your loved ones don't need to know how to have done the operation, the bypass better to point out that that bypass sucked and didn't work. Right? Like, and then when they sue that doc for malpractice, the judges, the jury are not going to be like, well, you know, unless you can do a better job of, of, of cardiovascular surgery, you're not liable for damages for the loss of your loved one. That's not how this works. That's not how any of it works. But I'll play every now and then I'll play the game. Okay, I'll play the game and say, all right, see, here's what I would do. So here's what I would have done. Iraq is the 51st state. Uh, we send all of our refineries over there with modern technology to drill the hell out of their, the ground, get the, hell, the oil in the ground there. We flood the market with it. We don't even negotiate with the Saudis and OPEC or any of those countries anymore. Uh, we have our new oil consortium. It's called the Coalition of the Willing, which is what we called our people that helped us invade Iraq. Those of you that sent... Um, active soldiers uh, as part of that coalition that bore arms and risked their lives that carried your country's flag. You're part of the coalition. Here's how it works. $50 a barrel, blanket oil price, doesn't change, constant. All the money goes to the Iraqis. It's their oil. It's their resource. All the jobs at the refineries go to two groups of people, the, the, the blue collar, the labor jobs. A, those who are nonviolent criminals that want to work off the rest of their uh, you want some prison reform? Here we go. Nonviolent criminals who want to work off the rest of their sentences. Illegal aliens who want to work to earn the right to become American citizens. And the Iraqis themselves. They get the jobs. They get all the proceeds. We, are not, we don't keep a dime of the money from all the oil barrels we just flooded the market with at 50 bucks an oil a barrel. Why? Because we don't need the money. What we want is cheap oil. And we want a renewable, cheap oil uh, source that keeps costs of gas and petroleum-based products, of which most of our economy is based upon, cheap and affordable. That's all we want. It's your oil. It's your money. You keep it, and we bribe you with it, and we with your own money, and we teach you how to create, how to farm your own uh, communities, how to create your own um, uh, small market, or I'm sorry, uh, small business communities, how to create a commodities-based economy, a market-based economy, um, and um, you're the, in the United States of America and we have the most specialized military base in the world located right there so that the next time anybody out there in the name of Allah wants to get froggy, we don't need desert shield. We don't need a four month buildup. We've got um, a, a flight of B-52 stealth bombers right there. And oh my gosh, Mecca's gone. Shocker. Don't F with us. That was my plan. Sounds absurd kind of as a standalone, right? Now, let's compare that to what we've done the last 15 years. Is it better than the last 15 years? Mm. Is, I don't know. I'm asking, is it better? No, you're, doing, you're following up Can't, perfectly it, it, from it, the point our, our letter yeah. writer made. Yep. Which gets us into, this is why people, there's a market for conspiracy. Yeah. All right? Because when, when and I don't blame you either to some extent. 
when you when people watch folks that are supposedly smart consistently do that which is obviously dumb you leave people with only one choice or two choices i or a you're just really dumb and we just totally misjudged you when you are the living embodiment of the peter principle you somehow got to this position of power despite yourself you rose to the level of your own incompetence or b there must be something nefarious happening because who willingly keeps doing what's stupid who does that I think the sad truth is, and it goes back to yesterday's show, our government on all levels, our industries, our corporations, et cetera, et cetera, are full of Scott Israels, yeah. Sheriff Scott Israels. Yep. Mm. They think they're doing, what did he say? I'm not doing, amazing I'm doing an leadership. amazing job. Amazing think, leadership. That's what he so. said. Yes. Yeah. All right. When we come back, finally, someone's going to rip you guys because I get ripped all the time. So I had to share at least one email of somebody ripping you guys. And someone wants me to answer a question I have promised to answer for years and just never gotten around to. All we right. Got, we got to two in that first segment? Or hey, three? We're, we're, we're making seven. Yeah. I promise. We're okay. hitting seven. Okay. All right. We're getting the over. Okay. All right. More to come here. Live and on demand on Blaze Media. Uh, stay tuned. All right, back here, live and on demand on Blaze Media. I am Steve Ace. They are Todd and Aaron. It's our final show of the year. It is day three of our three-day, the year that was 2018 extravaganza. We gave you the Dace Group Roundtable, uh, where we took a look at uh, awarding uh, people for terrible, good, and uh, overall jackassery. Yesterday, we took a look at the biggest stories of the year, the fakest news of the year. And today, we're just like Barack Obama, man, kicking his feet up on the chair. We're just cool, man. We're just chilling. Aaron's even back there leaning in his chair today, just saying it out. All right. I am very cool. My mom says so. Which I, I'm not even going to address that. So um, where were we? Well, we're sitting around being cool while Aaron, never mind. Um, and we're just going to get to as many emails in the email inbox before we get out of here today as we possibly can. All right. We're emptying the tank for the audience. We're here for you, the people. That's why we're here. And the over-under, we get to seven in two hours, yep. right? All right, yep. this is number four. All right. Three, isn't it? Is it three? Three. Mm, two. <laughs> we only got to two so far, so this is number three? <laughs> yeah. Is it? Crap. All right, we're going to pick up pick up the pace here and stop talking about your mom. All right? <laughs> Rob, Robert. Robert says, watching your show, I'm usually proud of Todd but he still uses um too much. And is that a hickey on Aaron's neck? That is from Robert. What do you think? Is that a hickey? Where? I don't know. I'm not, dude, I don't check out your neck. I don't know. No, I don't think so. Have you seen any hickeys on Aaron's neck? Why don't look at me and ask that freaking question. What are you talking about, man? Yeesh. Can we talk about my mom some more? <laughs> yeah. I love, I, I, I keep trying to see if I can get Todd with his guard down, right? To play along at all. I know. There's always he an immediate indignant, it. man. Remember, remember when I used to have us go into the PC zone and I'd have you and Kim repeat after me, you know, repeat a mantra? Mm-hmm. Todd's always sitting there just bristling, really uncomfortable, kind of smile with a smile on his face, but never plays along. Tried to get him to walk into a joke yesterday. 
just no fun. You were the kid when your parents went to student teacher conferences, the teacher always said he gets good grades, but he doesn't play well with others. Really? He doesn't play along well with others. You were that kid, weren't you? <laughs> more and more as time went by. Yeah. Yes. I, dig- I digress. Yes. All right. Let's go to Joe next. I was wondering if you guys could pray for me and perhaps talk a little about fatherhood on your show. Recently, my wife and I found out that she's pregnant with our third child and I'm a bit overwhelmed. I'm not worried about how to financially support another child, but I'm nervous as to how my other two children will respond. Jesus is at the center of our family and my two kids, soon to be seven and three, know how to pray. But I appreciate any words of wisdom you or Todd have to offer. You want to start with this one? Well, I'm confused. His primary worry is how his other two kids are going to respond to having a kid? Mm-hmm. I I don't know that I honestly can possibly answer that without more information. I mean, I don't know what... Uh, my kids were always, hey, another baby sounds fun. So I don't... I'd like to help. I feel at a, a bit at a loss. I, I don't, Am I interpreting something wrong? No, I mean, I read for you the entire email, and it's, an, I, don't, I mean, verbatim, that's what he wrote. I, I don't know what possible concerns you could have regarding adding life to your, your the children that already uh, are in your lives and at the age of seven and three. I, ju- I just, um, it's, it, it, they, they'll follow your lead. Let it be a blessing and it will be a blessing. Your four daughters, never. there was never any territorialism or anything of that. I don't, I don't want to share room. I don't want to give up my well, room, yeah, any of that kind of stuff. That's not, none of that even comes close to a reason not to have another kid. That's, that's, we're all sinners. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be helpful to this. I, I, it seems like there's got something unspoken there. What do you mean you think there's something unspoken there? Like there's a piece of the puzzle he hasn't provided for us? Yeah. Because uh, normally the issue would be the financial issue of another dependent, right? Yeah. That's not an issue. Um, Then he's worried uh, about how the two children will respond. I may, and I might be misinterpreting here, but... um, when you have a child who's seven and the other's three, then, you know, we've got a child who is uh, 17 and then the next sibling is 13 and then the next sibling is going to be 12 in February. So the difference in ages here is pretty close to what exists in our family. And I was concerned when... We found out that um, Amy was pregnant again after Zoe. We had actually wanted to have, our plan was to just have as many children as God would give us. And then she had uh, serious health complications with Noah and nearly died giving birth. So those plans were altered. Um, We tried uh, to get pregnant for several years after having Anna, our oldest, and just couldn't. And then after trying for several years, we had finally looked at, we, were, we actually began the process of discussing fertility treatments, and then Amy got pregnant with Zoe. And then we just figured, well, you know, it, it, it took this long to have the, the sister, so, you know, we'll just wait and see. Probably, we can't anticipate, we'll just have another kid real quick, and we actually did with Noah. And there was a concern we both had 
that Anna kind of had her turn to be sort of the baby of the family. And, you know, she was four years old when Zoe was born. And then just when Zoe kind of has her turn, now suddenly she's not the baby of the family anymore. And we were concerned about that. So I, I wonder if that could be one of his concerns because these look about the same ages or the distance and difference in ages as we had in our family. But without knowing if there's another piece of the puzzle, here's what I would tell you, Joe. If you're not financially overwhelmed by this, which is usually the number one concern people have, and if your family is at the, in the right place spiritually, then the best advice I would give you is not to create any self-fulfilling prophecies. Because if you're blessed enough financially that adding a whole other human being to the budget, which means another set of clothes, another serving of food, uh, you know, another uh, order when you go to the restaurant, and, and not like for the next 18 years, okay? If you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not worried about that, well, that's one of the major stressors right then and there. Number one, eliminated. Number two, um, the antidote to any stressor uh, is, is, you know, putting your faith at the center of all of uh, these ordeals and dilemmas and what goes on in your family. You're saying you're already doing that. So I can only give you advice, like Todd said, it does kind of feel like maybe there's a piece of the puzzle missing. So based on the... All, on, on only the information you've given us, here would be my advice. Don't create a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if you've got the right cornerstone, as you claim, and financially, the earthly you know, worries and issues that go along with that aren't a problem, then don't, don't fix something that isn't broken. Don't break something so that you can then fix it. You know what I'm saying? Just um, set the example, be the dad. Mm-hmm. And, and based on, you know, you've got two things going for you that a lot of families in our culture right now don't have, which is the right cornerstone. And you're not in a place where you're financially, you know, worried uh, all the time as a family. So then you know what, man? Praise God. And... No need creating issues. I wonder if maybe you're a bit of a worrier by nature, a planner by nature, yeah. and that's okay. But um, be as long as you're aware of that, and your family will take their cue from you, and don't create a self-fulfilling prophecy would be my best uh, advice. Make, yes, make sure first things are first. And if they are, a new life can't possibly devalue their lives. That's impossible. Life can get harder. They might not get along at times. But those are crosses that both will need to bear if they need to bear them, um, just as is the case uh, for all sinners. But the first order of business here is that life is good, and it can't possibly uh, devalue the children you already have. You've used a term there I think is is important, because this is something Amy and I have talked a lot about. And it's only in the last couple of years, it's funny how raising teenagers drives this point home, but it's only in the last couple of years we've understood it. It's hard when they're your kids and they're, they're, they're cute and they're adorable. It's hard. We need to remember they are adorable. They're also sinners. And I think that's the part we forget in that 
And I think you need both. You can't just look at them as sinners, but that they're not adorable. And you can't just look at them as they're just adorable, but they're not sinners. Okay, because... Um, this is a huge problem for modern Christian yeah, parenting. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, they're, they're, because both of those things are simultaneously true. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Uh, I think that in in a lot of cases, we tend to leave one or the other. My kid can do no wrong, um, so my kid's not a sinner, or my kid can do no right, and my kid's only a sinner and isn't adorable. They're both of those things, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. I think for a long time, we didn't really, we would say this out loud to each other, but I think only now that we're raising teenagers is it, uh, um, has it come home to what that actually <laughs> What that actually means. Because they had to go and get their own opinions on stuff. And that's not as much fun. Let's go to David Worley says, could you provide via your show or any of your platforms the following three lists? Oh boy. Number one, an essential reading list. Something akin to the Marine Corps Commandant reading list. Books, documents you think conservatives should read. Well, I can do, I mean, well, the scriptures are obviously number one. We've talked okay. about this before, though. Yeah. yeah, and I have I have threatened to do this for years and then never gotten around to it. But the scriptures would be, would be on the list. Um, I would read your founding. I'd read your Constitution and Declaration of Independence together. I'd read. Um, I, I read as many of the Federalist Papers or as, as I could as you could get your hands on. Um, I would read um, the Five Thousand Year Leap by Doctor Cleon Skousen, which I think. I would read the source material first. Don't cheat. Okay? Don't cheat. Read the source material first. It's a little bit like read the scriptures first and then go find a trusted commentary. Don't just read the commentary because you're kind of cheating. You know what I'm saying? You're, 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 you're looking at somebody else's notes as opposed to taking the test yourself. You know, so um, you know, I think so much of Dr. Skousen's work of taking an audience through the 5,000-year leap, not once but twice chapter by chapter in my career. That would be on the list because I think there's a lot of, I think that he helps to provide a lot of the historical context like a Bible commentary would. I think he provides a lot of the historical context around what you are reading in those founding documents, the arguments that were taking place that led to the things that are written and said and done in there. I I think that's a, uh, that's a vital tool. Everybody should read. Uh, I would read animal farm by George Orwell. Uh, because even though Orwell was a liberal, um, he was no fan. Uh, Orwell would have been like a Dave Rubin, using his name one more time. Uh, he would have been. He was a liberal, but he was no fan of of uh, BS coercion and and government uh, tyranny and a coercive state seeking cultural hegemony for the point of obtaining control and power over the populace. And so, what you're watching take place right now in the culture is literally right out of the pages of Animal Farm. I think that's a pretty good list. I'm sure I could come up with others. Um, if you're looking for something that would give you a really good comprehensive Christian worldview, a book I would recommend uh, from the late great Chuck, Ols- Chuck Colson was uh, his update of Francis Schaeffer's How Now Can We Live? I think it was called How Now Then Shall We Live? Or I think whatever the name of his update was, I can't remember the exact title, but uh, that book had a profound impact on helping me to holistically apply my Christian worldview rather than just in a couple of areas where it's obvious for it obvious for it you know for it to take part in so those are a few places that i would start um um 
I'll stop there. Anybody want to add anything else to that list? I'm just going to list off something. Uh, guys, get Audible. Audible is worth, I mean, more than worth the 15 bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem delivers a series of lectures. If you want to brush up on kind of some of the main points about having a good theological framework, uh, Systematic Theology is a uh, good one to have. Uh, let's see, the Bonhoeffer um, uh, biography by Eric Metaxas. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, I like Radical by David Platt, but it's also good to read or listen to Life on Mission by Dustin Willis after that, because Radical by David Platt, it's really, really popular with my generation and, and evangelical circles, uh, but I think it de-emphasizes the mission field um, that we have in our own back backyards uh, in favor of ones that are overseas. So uh, Life on Mission is kind of the domestic radical, the domestic version of radical. Uh, let's see. City of God, actually. Augustine. If you, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you really want to uh, mind scrambler, you know, something like that, that's really deep. Um, but it is, if you can, if you can really pay attention to what's going on, there's a lot of obviously great things there. Uh, and then one more. Nope, that's it. That's it. Oh, uh, yeah, The Cost of Defi- Discipleship by-, by David Horowitz. You know, we've talked a lot on our show about the difference between liberals and leftists. David Horowitz grew up in, in a home where he lived that transition. His parents were Marxist college professors. He was a part of Ramparts Magazine and uh, was a pioneer in the hippie counterculture movement of the 60s. And now he's a MAGA right winger. And how did this, and this book details the transition he went through ideologically when he saw liberal didn't mean what he thought it meant and that these were really Marxists. They were leftists. They really wanted to use government to push their agenda on you as a human being. So that's another book I would add to the list as well. Uh, Really quick, The Righteous Mind uh, by uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olansky, uh, and On Two Wings by the late Michael Novak. Two other things David asks us for, um, a list of Christian organizations that have resources or programs to help facilitate spiritual revival. Three, a list of political organizations that you believe are worth putting time into. And maybe a list of those you would say, do not waste your time. Let let me say this about the other two. Um, I'm going to be hesitant to go into specifics because there's leadership changeover. And it's not a simple cut and dried, like National Right to Life, for example. If if you were ta- telling me, Steve, will you would you should I be involved in their foundation to do pro life research and education? Yeah, Steve, the National Right to Life's political action committee says I should vote for this rhino in the no, meaning that in many of these organizations, the foundation that was the original organization that is still doing the the work the organization was founded for is perfectly fine, but the PAC is beyond corrupted by access based partisan politics. So here's what I'll do, you know. The, we broadcast every day from an organization called The Family Leader. The guy who runs it is one of my best friends. We don't agree on everything, but we have fought side by side on numerous causes. Um, I have no issue whatsoever because I know the way they operate. So even when they make a decision I don't agree with, at least I know how they made that decision. Um, he's the least um, national leader Bob Vanderplatz is. That's why he may, survives on this show. I would have no problem recommending them. Beyond that, here's what I'm going to do. You ask me a specific question in the future, and I'll give you a specific answer. I'm more comfortable doing that than just giving blanket recommendations of yay or nay right now. Because again, it's not so simple, you know? 
like organi- like Family Research Council, for example. I'm not a huge Tony Perkins fan, but I know people who run local chapters of FRCs that are great. You know what I'm saying? So it's not as simple as just giving you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So in the future, if you ask me specific questions about people or groups, based on my knowledge, I'll tell you the truth. But I don't want to go any further than that. All right, we'll come back. We've got one hour to go before we say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Stay tuned. Back for our final hour here, live and on demand on Blaze Media. I am Steve Dace. They are Todd. They are Aaron. Gentlemen, we have one hour left here. You ready to go? Yeah, it's been and then fun. I don't have to see your you guys' mugs for like. Oh, okay. Steve's calling you in for a special project. <laughs> yeah. Steve, I got to look at Steve. He was shooting me the death stare. <laughs> you know what, man? You've you you have you have endured it for this long, ladies and gentlemen. You might as well stick around to the bitter end to see how it all turns out. And I can promise you, it will be bitter. 888-900-3393 is the number. 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. For those of you listening on the podcast, last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Please leave us one of those five-star reviews, by the way, on your podcasting platform of choice. We greatly appreciate as many of those as we can get, as well as uh, as many of you that even just have a second to click that subscribe button. That helps uh, us to uh, raise awareness of our show, but it also makes sure that every new episode we do immediately goes into your podcast feed, so you don't have to look for it. So thanks to all of you, no matter when or where you are choosing or how to listen and to watch, we greatly appreciate all of you. Let's get to it. It's our final Feedback Friday of the year. We've just been uh, emptying the tank as we empty the inbox before we head out for what's left of 2018 with our families. Let's go to Jeff Hoke next. He writes, can two walk together except they be agreed? How does one have friends that are of a different faith or no faith or the same faith but different denominations or political views? What is implied by this Bible verse walk, and what does it mean by walk together? What's your take on the instruction of that verse? Is there any instruction? I don't think the question is the instruction. I think the question is the context, okay? So there's a difference between being in relationship with people who have a different value system than you to being in covenant with people in a different value system than you or being in deep abiding relationship with people of a different value system than you. Um, and this distinction is drawn all throughout the scriptures. What do I mean by that? Meaning that it's different having a friend who doesn't believe in God or believes that a different entity is God or has different views of what the God they believe in demands of us. Um, it's different. There's a distinction between being their friend and I'm going to go into business with somebody, put my livelihood and my family's livelihood in the hands of someone who, when we get down to it, doesn't have the same motivations 
at the heart of how they live their lives or why for that matter than I do. Or I'm going to marry such a person and and raise children with them despite clear existential differences. I'm not talking about pedantic baptism or full immersion. I mean existential uh, levels of difference. That's where I think um, we're talking about being in friendship or even an alliance or being in covenant, meaning a deep, abiding, committed relationship where for this to work, I have to submit to you on some level and you have to submit to me. That's where it's very difficult for two to walk together unless, except they be agreed, Todd. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, con- covenant is the key word. I mean, contextually, uh, that is the essence of what uh, Steve is talking about, a covenant or a testament. It is, it is about a, a sacred agreement, uh, yet we are still bound to go to the ends of the earth. And, and God is fundamentally about relationship. We just did a show on this within the last couple of weeks about how uh, one must establish a level of relation. We just did it with your friend Greg Jackson. That's mm-hmm. what it was, about mm-hmm. about how you sell this thing called the gospel. Well, uh, it just can't be some bland white paper. It's you got you got to break some bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, there's it, there's a there's not um, th- there's paradoxical thinking here. Uh, there's nothing that's um, in, in conflict. Uh, and you are if you take this out of context, uh, you will find yourself quickly drifting into some version of uh, being um, uh, in line with the Pharisees. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, and I mean, you look at the you, d- you drop the word context, and you look at the verses surrounding that in in Amos, and it's in the context of God's relationship with the nation of of Israel. That is a special relationship, in a fact, covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, God distinguishes in the verse before His relationship with His covenantal people uh, from that of all of the other nations of the world. So it's pretty clear that this is for these covenant-type uh, relationships and not just any relationship. And how do you have friends, um, you know, with other people? Well, you got you to gotta be friendly to them. And that's not something that I have been—well, I don't get out much, but, uh, you know, that's not something that uh, comes ne- necessarily natural to me just because I'm not a super outgoing. And so that's something that I have to work on whenever I do have relationships— you know, with those outside the church or without uh, those outside of my, you know, kind of inner circle of, of people. So let me bring up to my own experiences that of what this looks like when it's done right and what it's looked like when it's done wrong. Okay. So uh, a friend of mine uh, is a Messianic Jew, but he, he was an, he was an, he was a completely secular Jew. So not just not non-Messianic, but secular period Jewish by birth because his mom was Jewish he had no he wasn't attending synagogue he wasn't he wasn't you know studying the Torah um, I mean it was just Jew Jewish by inheritance from his mom all right so a friend of mine was a secular Jew when he married his secular Jew wife so neither one of them are actively religiously engaged at all okay um, he meets some, uh, he gets hooked up in the Jewish community where, where they eventually relocate to for, for him to get a, a, take a good job. 
And because he, it, it just kind of turned out ironic because he it was so religiously disengaged. He, had, he, he didn't know really that these were Messianic Jews. And what I mean by Messianic Jews, for those of you that don't understand the terminology, these are Jews who believe Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, is the Messiah. That's what it means, okay? Um, and so it just so happens that his friends and neighbors he gets hooked up with in the Jewish community in the neighborhood where he lives are of the local Messianic congregation. And so he, becomes, so he ends up getting involved in this. They have an indelible impact on his life. Uh, they minister to him and... You know, he becomes a Messianic Jew. Well, now him and his wife are unevenly yoked, to use a Bible term, meaning they are different stations now. It would be enough of a conflict if two people that both believe Jehovah was God, but Jesus was his son and one doesn't. That would be enough of a conflict in and of itself, even though they still have a much in common about how they see the world and morality and things of that nature, but there would clearly be a line there, right? But what, how big of a line do you think it is when the wife says, I'm not religious at all, and you skipped, you skipped all the way to Messianic Jew, <laughs> all right? Now, we're, we're, we don't have a line. We have a chasm here because that's, that's, you know, that's not what I married into, you know? They have a son, um, and, and what, over time, her willing, her his willingness to live out as best as he could this new faith of his and let it change him and then come clean to her when he fell short. Over time, more and more, she started to agree with him. And so when, there, when, it, when they had a son and he was of school age, he wanted to send the son to a Christian school. And even though she was not regularly going to church still of any stripe, respecting the differences that it's made in her husband's life, she submitted to that suggestion, okay? A few more years go by, and I get a call from him one day, and he's, he's panicked about Thanksgiving. And the reason he's panicked about Thanksgiving is that his wife's sister is coming to visit. And um, she's had some difficult relationships, mainly with men, and at the age of, you know, basically at around the age you and I have, is now decided she's a lesbian after a couple of marriages and other things and has decided men didn't work. I'm going to give chicks a try. Maybe they're nicer. <laughs> there might be something to that argument, frankly. But uh, um, she wants to bring home her partner for Thanksgiving. Well, this is not what they model or live out in their home. But... The sisters, his wife and her sister are tight and they have been since they were little girls. And now he fears for the first time in many years, this could be a wedge now in the home. How do I manage it? So he called me up and just kind of shared with me and asked me what I thought. And my first piece of advice to him was this. Since your religious awakening, since your spiritual awakening, have you had any of your old secular hangout college buddies or work buddies Come stay with you because he lives in a nice big house. Have you had any of them come stay with you with their girlfriends they weren't married to and you let them sleep in the same room? Or have you kind of winked and nodded and were you okay with any of that? And he said, why are you asking me? I said, because here's the truth of the matter. If the answer to that question is yes, you, you can't draw the line here. You're going to walk right into the enemy's trap. We do right have a in. way of making homosexuality a special yes, piece yeah. Yep. You, 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 are, you are literally, you're not falling for the banana in your tailpipe. You are going to the store. 
you are buying a bushel of bananas, okay, and you are shoving as many of them into your own tailpipe as you can possibly fit there <laughs> until they come out through the hood. All right. You're going to fire up the car, and all of a sudden the, the hood pops open and outbursts just bushels of bananas. Okay, this is the trap. You, you, you have wooed your wife all these years and have gotten her to submit to your leadership as the husband and the father, even with this religious difference between the two of you because of the integrity you've walked in. I didn't say perfection. I know him. I know he ain't perfect. I'm not. This isn't, integrity's not perfection. It's consistency. That's different than perfection. A consistency of right belief and right behavior. That's integrity, not a perfection. If we were capable of perfection, we wouldn't need a savior. Why do we fall, Bruce? So we can get back up. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about consistency. The long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson used to describe discipleship. She's seen that in your life, and so that's why she respects that. And now we're at the point she's actually coming to church with you and your son every now and then. What you cannot do now is hold her and her sister to a standard higher than you have held yourself and your own friends and peer group. You can't do that. And that was the very first conversation we had to have. Um, Because in order for this to work, he has to have integrity. And if he doesn't have that consistency, then ultimately the wife, I've used the word submit several times on purpose. His wife has never really submitted to him, really. She's submitted to God. Through him. She has seen godliness through her husband and has appreciated that and submitted to that. That's the, that's the goal of submission. If, if you change your standard or alter it or disobey it, then that's where the friction of why am I submitting to you? Who are you? Who are you to boss me around? Who are you to say my sister and her girlfriend can't come to Thanksgiving when your friend Charlie, and I don't know if he has a friend Charlie, I'm just using that as an excuse or example. Your friend Charlie and his, uh, trof- you know, his trophy mistress were here for Memorial Day last weekend and we heard what was going on in the bedroom after, you know, in the middle of the night and you're going to play puritanical with me? That's what I mean. That's when submission becomes a bad word. See, men think headship is about authority. It's not. It's about responsibility. You're not the authority God is. You're the primary person responsible to him who is the authority. That's the chain of command. You're not the, you're not the authority. You're responsible to the authority. Don't conflate authority with responsibility. I make this mistake a lot, which is why I'm so, you know, what's the old line? You always tell what a pastor is struggling with by what he is the most passionate speaking out against. I'm speaking out against one of my struggles right here, okay? So authority and responsibility can be the same thing, but they're not always. Don't conflate them. And he went through and realized, yeah, there were some times where I didn't uphold my own standard here. And so I'm going to have to, mercy's going to have to triumph over judgment. I'll have to sit down with my son and explain to him right and wrong and things of that nature, but... Now the math changes because he has to make sure he is walking in integrity. Now, here's an example I've witnessed that where it looked wrong. And um, I used to be friends with the woman. I can't remember if she was the head or the 
the chair or the vice chair of John McCain's uh, Faith Outreach Coalition in his 08 presidential election. And her and I were having lunch one day during the campaign, and it was it was right after it was shortly after Sarah Palin's outstanding convention speech that launched her into stardom, and and now the left's on full attack mode because we can't have a woman, we can't have we can't have a figure that violates the intersectionality flowchart, you know, represent values that are opposed to us because you know conservatives are, uh, you know, um, they hate women, don't you know? So the full on attack is on. And and Sarah had given a couple of interviews where she was bad. Remember the Charlie Gibson one she gave where she just, I, I don't know, Charlie, that was my, yeah. what did she keep saying? That was my previous opinion. So what happened was, if you remember that campaign, Sarah Palin gives this speech, overshadows, no one even remembers John McCain's convention speech. No one remembers. She's the star. And then slowly but surely, literally minutes after she walks off that stage, Stephen Schmidt and the John McCain team begin, they're like, we got to tone her down. And so they begin to try to morph her into John McCain, a prettier version of John McCain and pumps. Well, that's my previous opinion, Charlie. Was that the, wasn't that the line she kept giving me in that interview? I've purged that from my memory. Hey, well, because uh, Gibson was like, well, you're pro-life. He's pro-life uh, with 75. Except, well, that was my previous uh, or personal opinion, Charlie, but per- that's what it was. That was my personal opinion. But now that I'm his running mate, I basically have to do whatever he tells me to do. They were McCainanizing her which meant they were essentially taking away all of the things that made her a good running mate for him, that excited the McCain's base for the first and really only time in his entire presidential run. Just exhibit like 5,480 yep. why Steve Schmidt is terrible. Yes. yes. And, and I'm sitting at lunch with this woman who is in a position of influence to speak up about what is going on in this campaign. And I remember asking her, what, what's going on? Why aren't you saying anything? And she proceeded to tell me that like Daniel, she had to submit to the earthly authority. Um, and that wasn't her place. I'm like, um, I think you have the story wrong. If Daniel had done what you suggested, sister, it wouldn't be the book of Daniel. It would have been the guy who came along after who actually did what God wanted, the book of uh, Aaron. I don't know. Whatever guy eventually came along and did what God wanted done in those situations, he'd have written the book. Right, It's the book of Daniel because he did what God said was right, regardless of what the earthly authority said. You're the head of the Faith Outreach Coalition. Speak up. Say, hey, my faith outreach is going to start to really suck if we take this woman of faith that has fired up your faith base for the first time and make her like you. Do you want homogenization or do you want a coalition? Choose. That's what you should say in that situation. But she didn't. And in the end, this is an example of how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Because she decided, this woman did, her authority was not God in that situation. Her authority was the John McCain presidential campaign. And so she submitted to that. Which means she's not really running John McCain's Faith Outreach Coalition. She's really shilling to the faith community on behalf of John McCain. She's a, uh, you know, uh, she's a propagandist. I, I don't know how else to put it. That's really what you're doing. Faith outreach means I'm reaching out to you. What are your needs? What are your concerns? How can we, how can we address them? How can, how can we earn your vote? Shilling is I just do whatever they tell me and keep my mouth shut and collect the check. Which one do you think Daniel did? Well, 
one of them gets you thrown in a lion's den and the other doesn't. Was he thrown in a lion's den? Yes. So we know he didn't do the shilling one because they don't throw in the lion's den for shilling. They throw you in the lion's den for like, you know what, man, I'm, I will happily do, sir, whatever you ask of me until you ask me to give you something that isn't yours. Until you ask me to render unto you that which is God's. I won't give you that. So my answer is no. She wasn't willing to do that. So she didn't have a, she didn't, and she had spun this into, I have a place of influence. No, you don't. You have a seat at the table and you're going to protect your seat at the table. You don't have any influence, actually. You're a prostitute. That's really what you are. Let's just get no BS. Let's just keep it real. That's what you're doing. And you're just turning tricks for a presidential campaign. That's all you're doing. Now, let's just be honest about it. There's, there's no influence here. At least not that you're wielding. You've been influenced, but you're not an influencer. No influence is being exerted by you. It's being uh, imposed upon thee. That's what's happening. And so that's an example where one person is attempting to navigate a pluralistic fallen world where they're not always going to have the convenience of homogenization. Everybody thinks just like me. And one friend of mine is attempting to do it and it's clumsy and sometimes the, it's, a, it's a dirt, jagged road and it ain't a straight line because human nature is not an algorithm, right? And so sometimes you fall and stumble and, and you got to do the math in your head, you know, but you're always eventually heading in the right direction. That's, that's walking in integrity. Sometimes you're kind of like this, but you're always pointed the same way. You're walking in integrity. The other person wasn't doing that. And had just decided um, the way to solve the walk together is that we do agree. And I just agree with whatever you tell me to do so we can walk together and I can have my influence my, uh, or my perceived influence. But really what I want is my access and my check and my significance that I get from being in alignment with you. That's not integrity. Your thoughts on that, gentlemen? Well, uh, I, I've got two thoughts, uh, regard, particularly regarding the uh, gay sister-in-law question. There's a bake the cake bigot quality to all this. If you own that bakery uh, and you're just selling your cupcakes and two gay people whom you know to be gay for any number of reasons walk into just like some cupcakes, you sell them the cupcakes. Mm-hmm. It's that it's not complicated at, at all. And hopefully there's a future that, hey, man, I, I know this guy, you might, the gay couple might find out that this, uh, the baker thinks things, but hey, I always go in there and they make cupcakes and they're good cupcakes. He always treats me nice. And that's how you have a society uh, that's pluralistic. Uh, but if that couple comes in there and says, um, you're going to put this on the cake, uh, that's not how this is going. Similarly with the sister-in-law, uh, f- family. People you love, how are you going to ultimately hope to ever um, break bread with them in a fundamental way, i.e. helping them through uh, that time they're in without keeping them close? So you keep them close. You have dinner. You share share small talk. Uh, You you do that to the best you can. And if they're agreeable to that, that's fine. Uh, but if they come in with demands into your home, safe space demands, trigger word demands, where you have to put your worldview uh, to the sideline while they get to force theirs down their throat? No. Yes. No, yep. no, 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 no. Agreed. Yes. Secondly, and really quickly, you're a fan of our show. You're asking the question, uh, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Um, I'm at this table. Steve's right there. Mm-hmm. I'm Catholic. He's not. We do this show. You like it. I think we prove that this is possible. Right. Yeah, and this goes back to what you talked about yesterday, Steve, uh, in regards to, and this is not at 
at the heinous level of, of of the examples provided yesterday between the Catholic Church and abuse within that wall for the second within those walls for the second time amongst some in leadership positions, and um, and what went on with Larry Nasser at Michigan State and how. The same thing happened in both of those situations, one in a secular setting and one in what's supposed to be a a sacred setting. Um, at some point along the way, the authority, uh, God's authority was replaced by either making God something he is not or by completely rejecting him whatsoever. The same thing happens all the time and that example you just provided about the, the person running McCain's uh, faith coalition outreach um, – Something she either she had made God into something that he wasn't, or knocked get, do, knocked God's authority down mm-hmm. a peg. That's the same thing that happens all the time. That happens every time we sin, and because we're sinners, we sin every day. Um, but you know, there there are some uh, some things where we espouse uh, that our faith is really strong in this area, uh, or we think it is. And what's really happened is is that we've uh, we've just we we Romans won ourselves. We've uh, exchanged the truth for a lie, and it's so easy to do, especially in the political context. We may be the strongest um, strongest believer in 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 other areas of our lives, but especially for whatever reason, in the political context, in the cultural context, it is really really easy for us. Speaking about myself here, for us to confuse who the chain of command <laughs> is and where it goes, and to obey that and live like that. Yeah, I, you know, the more I think about it, I think we could have simplified this conversation by looking at the example of Christ. I mean, he ate with sinners, but if the occasion was <laughs> to celebrate the sin, then the then like you know Herod's temple, he's silent. But if the occasion is we're human beings, um, you know, breaking bread, I, I think that, you know, that's kind of the point that you were mm-hmm. making there as well. Um, John C. says, if you guys ever move to San Diego, I'm going to buy a house for you next door so you can be my neighbor. <laughs> John, I think before I take you up on this offer, I need to ask this question. Are you close to a Del Taco? If you guys ever had Del Taco, is it uh, is it anything as good as Tasty Tacos? Oh, I can't stand Tasty Tacos. The local place here, love oh, Tasty Tacos. Makes me sick oh, to my stomach. It's, it's awful. Yeah, but that can't be a standard. Half it's, the food in the world. You're the ugly American, man. That's come awful. on, take it easy. Tasty Tacos is awful. It's cheap though, and not as impossible. <laughs> I, I have not had Del Taco since 1986, which was the you know. But I used to eat it when we lived in California as a kid, and I. It's been 32 years, and it's left such an indelible impression on me that when I first saw John's email about San Diego, my first thought was, I wonder if he's close to a Del Taco. The guy just offered to buy you a house, and you're worried about the tacos? Yeah! Buy us a house. I think we all have to live together. Because the way I look at it, this is John's, this is the initial offer. We're negotiating from here. All right, so the initial offer from John is, I buy you a house. All right, that's where the negotiating begins. Right now, I need some. Now, all right, so I need some value added, John. Are you close to a Del Taco or not? It's really simple. Talk about being unequally yoked. We can work together, but there's no way the three of us are living together. No. Not happening. No. You guys have never tried Del Taco. Then neither have I. In 32 years, 
I just know the fact that I can still remember it so well. What makes it, it so must good? have been good? What makes it so good? I don't remember. It was 32 years ago. I just remember liking it a lot. I, it, it, don't you think it means something that I read John's email the first time? And, and my initial thought was, I wonder if he lives next to a, a Del Taco and I haven't eaten one of those since or oh, one it of means those since something, 1986. Right. Yeah. It means something. Yeah. What, 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 are you, what are you hinting at? What are you insinuating, Erzin? That I, uh, like I said, uh, a house. Um, a house. I, I'm speechless because the man flavors. says, I'm going to buy you a house. <laughs> we have chocolate. Vanilla and strawberry. <laughs> All-time favorite Beavis and Butthead. All-time favorite. Um, yeah, I, John, I'll tell you what. Let me know if there's a Del Taco nearby. San Diego's San Diego's got to be a nice place, though. It, it is, from what I remember. I've I've never been I've never been to California, but uh, if you know, obviously, if I ever moved there, I'd want to move to Southern California. I've always wanted to be uh, live in Santa Barbara, but they have that. I think they're the city with the plastic straw ban, right? Yeah, Santa Barbara, I was just there with Salem a few years ago, but we never left this five-star hotel in the Pacific, so I didn't see if there was a Del Taco there. I know there's got a – Santa Barbara seems like the kind of place that knows good food, and they would have a Del Taco. If you live in California, man, and there's a Del Taco, tell Todd and Aaron what's is, up. So You guys the, aren't believing this. Is the Del Taco basically the Taco Bell – I mean, can you imagine the authentic – Mexican food that's in San Diego. I don't want any of that stuff. See, yeah. I want ugly American Mexican food. That's what I want. <laughs> this guy, uh, he's, he's going to write a letter. That when we come back, he says, forget about it. I don't want you yeah. to come. Yeah. I made a uh, terrible yeah. mistake. <laughs> we'll come back in a moment. is it it's the last 20 minutes of the year what a long strange trip it's been back to the final segment of 2018 for the steve day show here on blaze media the final of our three-day uh extravaganza year in review let's continue and get through as many of these notes as we can all right um steve writes i keep hearing you say bake the cake bake the cake bigot well we have a new twist on that here in massachusetts where voters just upheld the bathroom slash locker room law. There was a complaint filed with the attorney general's office almost a year ago by a quote unquote woman saying that a spa in my, my hometown of Milton refused to wax his testicles. Yep. Because we collected signatures to repeal the law, the same sex attracted attorney general set on the complaint until after the vote. Well, our new slogan here in Massachusetts is wax her testicles, bigot. Which one do you that like has, better? Cake bake the cake bigot or wax or testicles? I'm bigot. moving the, to Massachusetts. Will you buy me a house? Yeah. The latter. For the sure. latter? Yeah. Maybe. It just you rolls know off the tongue nicely. Maybe. The, <laughs> oh, God. Forgive us, Lord. We know not what we do. You know what's funny? <laughs> Amy and I last night just watched the Saturday Night Live. Christmas special we had DVR'd. Uh, is it and, the, balls? And, the, and the Shvetty Balls thing came on. <laughs> and what's her face as, as she's eating the pastry? Just I just I love the way it just rolls right off your tongue. And you just said that. <laughs> and I just lost it. <laughs> Here's another way 
two can walk together, even though, because <laughs> no. all the people that watch us know Steve's going to get some letters. I really love your show, but I don't understand the need to talk about the private places. <laughs> yeah, but, did you, you guys? That? Did you guys see Hugh Freeze, the uh, defrocked old oh, miss yeah, coach, that's, that's awesome. who lost who lost his job, yeah. not because of just because of NCAA violations, but because he was using a university owned cell phone to get himself hooked up with uh, escort services and massage, massage parlors on recruiting trips, and he got hired at Liberty the other day. Yeah. And at his press conference, when he was asked about it, he said, and I quote, the only one who can handle my junk is Jesus. Did you guys see that? I did not. Oh, dude. Could you please come up with a different expression? Hugh Breeze for president. All right. (laughs) That's a double entendre America does not need. Okay. I mean, come on, man. A little is can we have a little self awareness in America? No, a little, no, a little. Let's go back to the emails. Um, we should that we should get a t shirt, wax her <laughs> testicles, bigot. The Steve Day Show. Yeah, what do you think? Yep. What are your thoughts on esports? Samuel Williamson writes specifically. Do you all think they can be recognized as a real sport? I like to know your thoughts specifically from the perspective of analysis and casting. In addition, I'm a red-blooded uh, evangelical college football roll tide American millennial male who loves competitive esports, both as a spectator and a player. And I'd like to know what you all think about it. Um, I think you can call, and I we used to have these debates when I was a sports talk show host. If there is a legitimate competition with agreed upon rules and a score is kept, I think you can call that a sport, and, but and, you're not an athlete. Yeah. Okay. An athlete is someone who exhibits physical traits to to excel that transcend into other areas of physicality at the same time. Okay? So, do I think you are in a sport? Yes. Do I think you're an athlete? No, I don't. Okay? Um, like, I think a jockey is in a sport. I don't think he's an athlete. A horse does the work. Um, I think a NASCAR driver is in a sport. I don't think he's an athlete. The car is the vehicle. Does that but make sense? You have to be in a pretty... Well, I'm thinking about what's the guy with the really pudgy stomach uh, who's a NASCAR driver. I was going to say, you have to be in pretty good shape, though, to make it through an entire race, NASCAR race. But, yeah, I get the overall sentiment. What do you this think, is Tom? called e-gaming? Is e- yes, e-sports. e-sports. Yeah, competitive video gaming. I'd, I'd like to quote the great Steve Dace on this. No. Oh, my god! Come on, Todd. man. He is... Wow. This is like his... From, Chris, from the guy who Chris spends Pandolfo, his weekends doing soccer. Chris Pandolfo. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a few seconds. Uh, motion. If soccer's half of your life, you don't get to decide what a sport is. Any? Can I get a second? Uh, here, I. All in favor? Seconded, I. I. You don't get a vote. You play I, soccer. Eyes uh, have it. Uh, yeah, as long as there's a level playing field, too. I assume this is the case in esports, but, you know, with computers, there are a million different components and a million different potential points of fl- failure. So you got to have the same hardware, the exact same hardware. You don't want to have, um, you know, the processors sure. giving you. A, 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 but I assume that's part of the that's part of the, you know, formal competitions. But it's it's getting this to be a big thing, especially in South Korea. Code with like violations world everywhere. of uh, not world of. But yeah, there's 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 huge competitions. It's it's getting huge. Sharon Zanely says a couple of months ago, you were on one of your rants. And this was before you guys uh, went to the blaze because of your comments during the rant. I cannot remember the subject matter. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> but believe me, I remember your disgusting comparison comments that involved uh, menstrual bloody rags. Hey, see, the emails are already here. He's talking about the special parts and places again. You not only said this once, but you said similar words twice. I was appalled and was and was waiting for the other two men on your show to object to your words. Crickets. I've concluded they were, are your sycophants. I called Sierra TV and let them know what you said and was advised to stop watching your show. You think? Who is this? Sharon Zanely. Okay. You say you are 45. You sound like a dumbass teenager. A man of your age and life experiences and being married to a woman with children and hearing those filthy words come out of your mouth. Wow. You should never say things like this. What a reprehensible anti-woman thing to say. The lack of respect and coarseness evidenced by you was astounding. Shame on you. As I don't watch your show anymore, I want you to answer my email and explain yourself in an email. You do not have my permission to read or refer to my email on the air. You can also tell You can also tell Todd and Aaron that I have no respect for them either for their lack of response to your course comments. Um She's complaining about me referencing a, a particular scripture from the uh, from the uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah, who says, um, "All of our attempts to please God in our own carnal and earthly ways, and not in the ways that God desires, are like bloody menstrual rags of no value mm-hmm. in the sight of God whatsoever. We cannot earn His favor or merit." That's that's what that's the context of these comments that she's appalled by. Yeah, and I just want to say that uh, I'm sure Steve, Steve is an incredibly organized person, um, which should not be surprising. Uh, I just want to say I know I don't even have to ask him about this. I know he uh, tried to reach the prophet Isaiah um, to to pass along um, her concerns, but alas, he he's been dead for a while. He told me he's heard from Sharon Zanely before and found her um, her issues and complaints. Uh, he weighed them, yep. and they were measured and found wanting. Yeah, is her, what he told me. Yeah, her works are like, well, they're like uh, filthy rags. Yeah. Jerry writes, "I have uh, many churches I have visited preach the idea of community in the church. I believe they missed the target. Their idea of community is bringing non-believers into the church in order to convert them to Christ." There is a lie that only Christians can influence without being influenced. The purpose of the church is to equip or reach is to equip to reach out and become the light of the world. Secular beliefs visit the church and then make a home when we turn this around. A pastor I had compared a church to a locker room. The game is outside. Would you want plays called from someone still supporting the other team's victory? Now, which do you agree or disagree with that? Here's what I think. I think we can I think there's a difference between primary and exclusionary, all right? The primary point of the church is to equip the saints for the, do- for the works of the ministry. It is, it is to, uh, if you look at, Pat, at Paul's breakdown of the offices in the church, the only two that are intertwined, evangelist is a separate office, by the way. The only two that are intertwined are pastor and teacher. Evangelist has its own designation apart from that. All right, so the church is not primarily to be an evangelistic construct. It is not. It is primarily to be an apostolic and a discipleship-driven one. Now, what's the key word I just said in that sentence? Primary. Primarily, yeah. I didn't say exclusionary. I said primarily, all right? Um, because it seems kind of counterintuitive to equip the, the, the saints for the work of the ministry if you have 
non-saints come into the church and you're not equipped to deal with them in your ministry. Would that seem a little counterintuitive? Yeah, yes. Bit, yeah. yeah. All right. But the, the, the model of American evangelicalism is they have flipped this around. All right. There, if this was a pie chart, the huge colored area, one color would be evangelism. Seek, 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 seek. In this little sliver. Yeah. Right here would be discipleship. Okay. Actually, it kind of needs to be like, this is the pie. Like, Pac-Man is like the discipleship. And then the open mouth, this area, is the seek, is the evangelistic uh, opportunity. Because what is part of discipleship? What what's part of discipleship? Uh, being going and making, going more, and making disciples. more disciples. Yes, and I I need to be equipped to, to make more to disciples. Yeah. You know that's why we have multitudes. We have huge crowds, but we don't have people that are really, um, by and large, growing deep in their faith. And it's why you had polls like you had this year uh, from George Barna that showed less than half of American Christians understand or believe or even know what the Great Commission is when it's only the number one marching order of the Christian church from the Lord himself. So the model, is an, it's not an either or, it's an and also, but it's also a ratio. The primary, the primary point of the church is an apostolic discipleship building one. It's not its exclusive model, though. Okay, but it is its primary one. We have inverted that. It's almost exclusively now in America, at least in the evangelical church, an evangelistic one with very little discipleship going on. And usually early in the morning on Sundays or late at night on Sundays and very often or in often is it happening actually from the pulpit when most people are actually there. You, I mentioned this earlier. You've got within uh, the faith in all walks of life, you've got to get accustomed to paradoxical thinking so you don't fall into the either-or trap. Listen, the church is a field hospital for sinners, and a lot of times those sinners get basically brought in uh, with sucking chest wounds on a gurney. Their lives are an utter mess, and you want to bring them to that place to get the healing started, and they start uh, getting better. But sooner or later, instead of basically push-pulling or dragging them in, they need to own their own decision to be there. They want to be there and they need to want to continue the healing. And if they don't, they can leave. Uh, but if they, uh, many of them want to stay and get over in various ways and refuse to ultimately continue the healing that they're called to do. And that's why, again, I'll bring it up. It's pithy, but it's true. That's why on the level of discipleship, you have got to have uh, the excommunications will continue until morale improves in your arsenal. Mm-hmm. This, we don't. You just described Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. This is what you just gave a essentially a, a summation of everything you just yeah. said. The church yeah. right now is dominated by a bunch of squatters. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Yeah, and I think a big mistake that continues to be made is thinking that the that the actual worship service, the Sunday morning, that's going to be our chief vehicle of evangelism. Now it can be. It can be to to invite people to church if they are willing to go. Um, But then what often happens after that? Well, we have all these unbelievers here, so we can't preach anything or we can't say anything um, in our main service or what have you that uh, might turn them off. We can't do any hard teachings that might turn off these new believers who just need milk. So increasingly, it becomes easier to justify not giving those who need steak um, steak uh, and instead just giving everybody spiritual milk and 
you know, what happens if you, what would happen if you were a baby and you never got onto solid food? You would not grow and develop. And, you know, it's talked about in the New Testament as well. The, the primary, as I alluded to earlier, um, the primary way I think that evangelism should happen in a healthy, in a healthy uh, church context is by making solid disciples who then go out and make more disciples in their own communities, not necessarily in the context of the church built. We think of the church as the church building. Uh, I think of the example you've brought up of your neighbors next door, Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, that is how... That is how you start to make more disciples, believe it or not, is uh, is by just people who are you are in immediate uh, connection and vicinity to. That's who th- th- those are the people who are unsaved who will maybe have the most likely chance of seeing somebody actually living their faith uncompromisingly, but um, but in a in a way that um, there's just something different about them. And maybe they'll hate that, and they might hate that, and they probably will hate that, especially in our culture. Um, but maybe, maybe there's going to be a, a time in their lives where they where they're like, "Boy, I'm I need to reconsider some things," and they'll probably think of somebody. Well, who's somebody who lives differently? Who's just different? And they might think of you. I think that's the way evangelism is supposed to go, not in in Sunday morning in the service. Hey, let's get all together. Let's sing a few songs. Let's have a an uplifting service, uh, an uplifting sermon or homily or whatever, and then we'll go back home and we'll live like nothing just happened. That's that's what the vast majority of American evangelicalism has become. So we got through eleven emails, way over well the uh, the pre show total of seven. So it was pretty good. We have three minutes left in the year. I thought we'd uh, take a second. And just take a look back at what a crazy 12 months this has been for us on a professional level. Yeah, uh, We went into last year, into a contract year, and you just never know. In the Forget Trump. I'm just talking in the media environment in which we live. Um, where you're a success one day and the next you're not. We had no idea we'd still be doing this a year later. Um and I wrote a book that's coming out in January, Truth Bombs, anticipating the possibility that I could see my platform go away. And so I wanted to kind of have a final say uh, before I left, exited stage left and did something else with the rest of or the next stage of my life. And then lo and behold, I get the book done, written. Publisher gives me a nice uh, chunk of money uh, because they think that they can sell some copies of it. And then all of a sudden I get offered a three-year contract extension. I'm like, crap, I got to live with all these uh Things I just said. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, uh, but we were very thankful for that. And we saw a good growth of our show. And then right here at the end of the year, uh, we get a call telling us that uh, these two entities have merged together uh, to form uh, one of the largest platforms and all of conservative media. And, you know, we get to be uh, a small part of it each and every day. Uh, thanks to all of you that have watched and followed us and put up with us uh, all these years, but especially over the last 12 months uh, specifically since we're wrapping up 2018 and we just, uh, we can't thank you enough. I mean, I, I know there are times cause I'm, I'm aware of what the challenges my personality presents. I live with it and the consequences of it every day. And I'm, I know there are times we push you maybe further than we should uh, by the nature of how we roll. But 
don't ever believe it's for any other reason other than we love you, we care about you, and we are um, abundantly grateful for the support um, and patience uh, <laughs> that you have shown uh, with us over the last 12 months. And other than God's grace, the next reason we get to do this for a living is because of all of you. And we would just be remiss if we didn't point that out here at the end uh, and say thank you and uh, wish all of you uh, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We promise just to be as stubborn, difficult, ornery, and and hopefully um, half funny uh, in the new year as we were in this one. Uh, Todd and Aaron, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun over the last 12 months coming here to work with you guys each and every day as well. And uh, look forward to what 2019 has to offer. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and yours as well. Amen. And, yeah, thanks. And that's uh, that's it. You know what? The culture war is going to be here on January 2nd, folks. You know what I'm saying? Give some presents. Preach. Spend some money. Yep. Eat way too many calories. Remember the reason for the season. You know, enjoy the freedom that we're going to be fighting and arguing over for the next 12 months, for the next couple of weeks. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.